Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to see you this morning. We are going back to 2 Corinthians this week. If uh, you were absent last week, I would encourage you at some point to go back and listen to that sermon. I dealt with quite a bit of uh, introductory material uh, to get us into this letter. So without further ado, we're going to jump right in. We're going to jump in just quickly with a little bit of review for those of you who are visiting with us, but also to kind of get our head in the game of 2 Corinthians. Uh, this is most likely the fourth letter that we're aware of. Actually, we have in the Bible 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but there was one before 1st Corinthians. There was one in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians that we're going to hear about today. And then we basically have Paul who is on the defensive. Uh, the church there, or the churches, is probably a group of house churches in the city of Corinth, which last week I called the Las Vegas of the ancient world. What happens at Corinth stays in Corinth. Sorry for those of you from Las Vegas. And, uh, but, <laughs> good to see you, brother. Um, so we, we are coming into this letter, and Paul is on the defensive. And essentially, this has happened. He's written the first Corinthians that we're aware of in response to a Corinthians letter before that. And they haven't responded well to it. Uh, he is the apostle who is the, their father, he calls himself. You have not many fathers in the Lord. And he, he, he claims a, a position of authority and responsibility over them that, that they should clearly know. But they have broken out into their favorite preachers. They've got celebrity preacher syndrome. Uh, they've got all kinds of problems that unfold in 1 Corinthians. He writes to them, and it doesn't go well. As a matter of fact, it goes worse. It goes worse because of some of their response. As we're going to uh, learn in this letter, there's actually a main instigator. There is a man that is caught, has caused problems. He has rallied people together against Paul as a pastor. And uh, one of the questions that certainly rises as we go through these letters is, is where are the elders in these churches? I mean, they're never written to. In some of the other letters, they're written to, they're addressed, they're encouraged to do certain things. But where's the leadership? And it may just simply be at this point um, that they are so young of a church. We learned that churches were planted and later as Christians matured, elders uh, were, were, were planted there to stay there. Um, at this point, though, we still have these itinerant preachers, including Paul and Apollos and even Peter, who is making their rounds and trying to shepherd these churches. Well, as he's trying to defend himself, as he's trying to get straighten them out from the paganism and the corruption that they had experienced um, before they became Christians, he is addressing all these issues. They are not dealing with it well. We have this man who's now stirring it up within the group and, and at least for a time, by and large, uh, it is probably a minority who didn't follow them, but by and large, the church started making accusations against Paul based on this single man's uh, perspective. He was going around. He was causing grief. He is, uh, we'll, we'll hear some of this as the letter unfolds, but basically he seems to persuade the majority. Paul then, as we're going to hear today, comes and he, he uh, has a visit with them and he apparently just really lays it out. It grieves them. It is a painful visit. And then he writes up a follow-up letter to kind of do, redo or uh, try to repair some of the damage that was even done then. But one of the results is that the man who is stirring it up, this kind of um, rallying gossip guy against Paul, he actually repents. And uh, the majority of the church then come, come to repentance. And now he's dealing with a, a vocal minority 
who are no longer following this man or this group. So there's been repentance. There's been some encouragement. So now, as we come to 2 Corinthians, as I mentioned last week, it's an apologetic letter in the sense that he is giving a defense for his ministry, why he's an apostle, why he's not a false leader, why he's not a liar, why he's not a thief, why he's not a spiritual abuser. And as I've been thinking a lot about this letter and just even the landscape of our own day, the tough thing about 2 Corinthians is, like everything else, it can be abused. The reality is we have seen church leaders, even in recent decades, and and trust me, this goes back uh, millennia at this point. This isn't a new thing. Oh, no, all the leaders are are corrupt. Leaders have been corrupt for a very long time inside and outside the church. But at this point, we are seeing in our own day, and because of social media, we are seeing corruption and fall and manipulation and sexual abuse and financial abuse and all the rest. And so when we come to hear Paul's defense of himself, it could be easy for us moderns to be skeptical and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or either that or we're going to be like, oh, like Paul's totally vindicated. Like we would never fall into the problems that the Corinthian church did. But they were just as skeptical and questioning about leadership as we are in our own day. And so a sermon through or sermon series through 2 Corinthians can come uh, as this kind of a battle force for church leadership and why you should submit to them. And that's actually not what Paul is doing here at all. He's calling on his character and what they know of him personally. And that's what we're going to see begin to be unfolded uh, this morning. Now, here's the challenge that it comes to a letter. And I don't know about you, but the older I've gotten, and I mentioned this back in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, that doing something like turning um, a narrative passage into a sermon just feels weird. I mean, it's what we are supposed to do with the Bible. But to take a story and turn it into a sermon, to take one literary genre and turn it into another is just kind of strange. And I'm starting to feel that with 2 Corinthians, because we're reading somebody's mail. I mean, this is not a theological treatise. This is not a sermon. This is a letter to a church to try to seek reconciliation where there's broken relationships and mistrust. And now I'm going to turn that into a sermon series. I don't know. It just feels weird to me now. And maybe it's because I'm paying so much attention to the drama or to the the genre and the drama within the genre. But I'm going to try to do that anyway. So what we talk about expository preaching is this. It's just the challenge of expositing a letter in this case, which was a personal letter written to other specific people in other circumstances than our own. And then, once we looked at what it meant to them then, we're going to ask questions about what does it mean to us now. And it's not always a one-on-one correlation, because we aren't the Corinthians. We don't live 2,000 years ago. I'm not an apostle. None of your pastors are apostles. These are unique things, but we still have to try to glean from them the things that are enduring, and we're going to try to put into practice in the modern day. Here's some things that we can pay attention to. How does Paul deal pastorally with the churches? Now, Paul was not a local church pastor in the way that I am or Tyler or Ben is. Paul is this itinerant apostle. apostle. He is one uh, particularly called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He has a specific space there outside of the 12 apostles. But I'm not talking about how he pastors them as a local church leader, but 
What is his heart toward them? How does he show the love of Jesus to them? How does he shepherd and care for them, though he's not a local church pastor? Those are some things we're going to see through 2 Corinthians. Secondly, what are the enduring principles to be extracted? And again, it's not always one for one. One answer to a specific circumstance is not always the answer to similar circumstances, though they may be. That's going to be a little bit tricky to navigate at times. We need to pay attention to what is particular to this situation, including Paul's apostolic authority. And where preachers can get it wrong and churches can get it wrong is to lift a passage out of a defense letter for his apostleship quote it and say, for that reason, you just need to submit to me. That's just abuse of authority. That's just not how this thing works. They are a specific people being dealt with by a specific person in a specific office. And so we have to be careful about one-to-one correlations. Then we ask the question, how is this principle, since I'm not an apostle, our elders are not apostles, you are not the Corinthian church in particular, how do we take this general principle and apply it in our day, in our age, for us as God's people. Okay, so let's begin then this week to look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, what I'm calling a mutual boast. Remember, he's opened up the letter. He has told them that he blesses God for this thing that, that is, is going on, particularly in him, the God who is the God of all comfort, who is the father of mercies. We saw that that's very unusual for him to talk about God's grace toward him rather than God's grace toward the church. He talked about these afflictions, what I call the, 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 the birth scars of, of love for them, of how, how it was that he brought the gospel to them through much suffering and much pain and, and distress, even thinking that he was going to die. And then this discussion about prayer. Now he moves out of the introduction of actually into his defense, and he starts with what I'm calling a mutual boast. He says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. So this is part of his defense point one, which is, this is my real disposition toward you as a church. Our boast. Now we're going to talk about this whole point, these these couple, two, three verses here, are all about boasting. And it would do us well as Christians to think clearly and biblically about boasting. Because on the one side, we say things like, oh, we should never boast in, in, in anything that I've done. I should never boast in something another Christian has done. I certainly can't boast about the church because they're going to get all proud and arrogant and everything else. So there's the, on the one side, it, it is an anti-boasting. And then there's, of course, the other extreme of sinful boasting. But what we're going to see here is Paul wants them to boast in him. And he says, I'm already boasting and one day will fully boast in you. Now, we think of boast being driven by flattery or boast being driven by self-glory. The boasting means essentially to to give thanks or to identify and to acknowledge and to glorify someone or something. It can be used like anger or desire. It can be used in negative ways. But here Paul is using this term of things that he is actually boasting in. And at this point, he's boasting, watch this, we boast in this, the testimony of our conscience. I am boasting, I am bragging, if you think about it the right way, in my conscience. 
Because my conscience is doing something. And this is pretty bold. And he's going to deal with it again later and say, basically, I'm not justified by this. I'm just telling you the reality of it. This is the testimony of my conscience, of our conscience. We've already seen this is a little bit rhetorical. He's talking primarily about himself and those secondarily behind him, with him. But he's talking about himself. He is boasting in the testimony of his conscience. Now, the conscience, biblically speaking, is this internal mechanism that either says yes and amen or no to the things that we do or we, we say. It is that when we know we've done something right and it affirms us and says you did the right thing. When we do something wrong and it says, I, 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 it's an internal mechanism that can either be well-tuned to God's ways and God's law, or it can be mistuned. Sometimes we can say, well, I just have a good conscience about that. Well, sometimes that's because our conscience is misinformed. Sometimes we don't think the right thing. And our conscience is saying, you did good when we really didn't do good, objectively speaking. But is that internal mechanism nonetheless that we have to live with? And here's something I love that Jordan Peterson says the other, uh, all the time. And it's, and it's so powerful and so simple is if you want to know where to start with something, just ask yourself, what is the one thing I know I ought to change? And just start there. Like that your conscience says, you don't have to change everything. You don't have to change your whole life. But what is the one thing that is within my control that I know I should be doing something about that I'm not? And he's like, you want to change yourself, change the world? Start right there. And so it is that internal mechanism. What do I know that I'm doing right or wrong. And here's what he, he boasts in is this testimony of his conscience. When he queries his conscience, conscience, is there anything that I'm aware of in an ongoing way that I am doing wrong or that I'm acting wrongly or that I have bitterness or that I'm doing uh, the right thing, the wrong thing? And he queries his conscience as his conscience comes back and says, I am clear. It doesn't mean Paul's sinless. It doesn't mean that he's not without fault or that he hasn't failed or gotten angry, but there's nothing with which to get a, a real grasp of his conscience to say, no, I, I know exactly there's, there's things I need to change that I'm not doing anything about. He says the testimony of our conscience is that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. That's something he can ask his conscience. Conscience? When you measure my behavior and my thinking and my way of living, have I behaved in this world, in the world of the Corinthians, in the world in which I live, with simplicity? And simplicity is basically the opposite of duplicity. That is living two different ways. It is pretending one thing and acting another way. Simplicity means just a kind of honesty and, and openness and candor that what you see in me is what I really am. Like there's no hypocrisy here. There's, there's no cover up. There's no anything that uh, my conscience is, I'm saying and presenting myself a certain way, my conscience is going, you know, you rat. You know, you're presenting yourself in a way that's completely contrary to how you are. And I'm not talking about remaining sin. I'm talking about intentional play acting and pretending in such a way that your conscience condemns and says, you are not living according to how you know you're presenting yourself or you ought to live. And he says, I queried my conscience about that. 
And I can say, I'm honestly living in what you see is what you get with sins, with failures, with struggles, with all the rest. Nevertheless, there's a simplicity and a godly or a Godward sincerity. And again, that's just kind of a synonym for. And, and here's what he's doing. They are accusing him of lying and changing his mind and flattering them and changing his plans and having uh, uh, ulterior motives. That, that's what he's really responding to. So all of these accusations that was at one point led by this singular man that, that uh, took the majority of the church, he's come and spoken with them. That man has repented. As a result, these other people have repented. There's still a group, and there's a later group called super apostles who we're going to deal with later in the letter who've also come and made accusations against Paul. And Paul says, these are, the, these are the accusations that are going around. I'm telling you, I have a good conscience that I've lived with simplicity and godly sincerity. And I, I boast in the testimony of a good conscience. Now, I, I served on jury duty a couple, a few weeks ago. And one of the things that we were told in the instructions of jury duty is we have two defendants here. But this person is innocent unless proven guilty. And one of the lawyers said to us very clearly, it is not innocent until proven guilty. That's different. Until and unless, until means the idea of this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be driving on I-65 until I hit Indiana. That means hitting Indiana is inevitable. So when you say guilty until proven innocent, it means it's just a matter of time. We all know where this is headed. Guilty unless, or innocent unless proven guilty is something like this. I'm going to drive north unless I get a flat tire. In other words, getting a flat tire is not a given. It may happen, it may not happen, but it's not assumed. And so what Paul is working with here is, is, is I've thought about this, is we were given that principle and we were told one of the defendants is probably not going to defend themselves. They're not going to take the stand. And what you cannot do is to assume their silence means guilt. You're not able to do that. Their silence, just like the right to remain silent, implies no guilt whatsoever. And that's most, what most of us do, right? We say, well, if I don't say anything, or if somebody's accused or a leader is accused, well, the fact that they say something about it, or this, excuse me, something, the fact that they don't say something about it, you know, there must really be something there or they would have said something about it. But then it's a catch-22, isn't it? Because then somebody who's accused of something gets passionate. And they say, no, 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 that's not the case. And they say, well, why are you getting so upset about it? You're getting all emotional. That must prove some guilt as well. Or if they dispassionately respond, well, did you see how just flat they were when they responded? So once somebody is assumed guilty, the response is relatively irrelevant. And I think, what is Paul supposed to do in the midst of this? He's accused of these things, headed up by this ringleader. And at the end of the day, he's got to stand before them and he is largely lost and now gain, regained some influence what is he supposed to do? He, he has the right to remain silent. It doesn't mean he's guilty because he remains silent, but he chooses to write. And this is the first thing he writes is, I boast in the testimony of a good conscience that I've behaved 
in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. In other words, my conscience is clear. Whether you believe me or not, my conscience is clear before God that I have nothing nagging in me that says, Paul, you know, you know. He says, I've, I've queried it and I don't I have a good conscience about this. But this isn't a boasting, he says, a boasting by earthly wisdom. But this is a boasting by the grace of God. He's not really boasting in himself, man, I'm just, man, I'm an honest guy. And that's just kind of way I am. And I'm always speaking forthrightly, whatever. He's like, look, what I am is by the grace of God. This is an earthly wisdom. This isn't me playing with the numbers. This isn't a manipulating of the conversation. This isn't me controlling of the scenario. It is the grace of God and not by earthly wisdom uh, and supremely so towards you. And the supremely so, what does that modify? I think in part, it probably modifies both his grace toward them, but also his good conscience toward them. It's like all of these accusations, and I'm sorry, folks, they're not sticking. Somebody is trying to assassinate Paul's character and undermine his authority, and they're manipulating real world events to fit a specific narrative. And Paul's just saying, your conclusions are wrong. And I have a good conscience. Supremely so toward you. And then he says this, and he continues to talk about the boasting. So I'm boasting in the testimony of my conscience that though I'm accused of these things, I don't know anything against myself. And that's not because of earthly wisdom. It is the grace of God supremely towards you. And then he says, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understood or understand and hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, we will boast of, you will boast of us, we will boast of you. Okay, so this is a pretty convoluted Pauline statement. Not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. Okay, so you read something, you have a basic understanding. And I hope from that basic understanding that you have, you will fully understand, like I can bring you along in this letter. Just as you did partially understand us, that's so Pauline, it's just this multiplication of words. And at the end of the day, it's like you have some basic understanding. Just please follow me along with this. But here's the reason I want you to follow me along with this. So that on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that that is just biblical terminology for the eschaton, for the coming of Jesus, for the new heavens and the new earth, for the final judgment, for the resurrection from the dead, for God making all things new. This is the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that climactic event. He says, so follow along with me so that on the day of our Lord Jesus You will boast of us. And what he pictures is this. The Corinthian church in a glorified, resurrected state, standing before the throne of God, standing before Jesus, pointing at Paul and boasting in him. He was our guy. He was our apostle. That's Paul. I know Paul. I know Paul. He's the guy that sacrificed for us. He's the guy that carried a good conscience. He's the one who loved us. He's the one who wrote us. He's the one who visited us. He's the one that cared for us. He's the one who sacrificed. He was the one who martyred. Jesus, look, and they're boasting in Paul. And he says, that's what I hope one day you will be able to do. Because right now, they're not only not boasting of Paul, they're ashamed of him. 
because of these super apostles, because of this contingency of a group, and because of this former ringleader, they're ashamed of Paul. Oh, you mean Paul, the apostle? Man, the broken guy that's all scarred up and can't talk right and is not nearly as glorious and successful and it comes shuffling in here barely able to stand and threatens us through letters and he shows up and he's weak. You know, I'm going to come here and give you a whooping. And he shows up and he's, you know, shuffling his feet in. It's like, well, that happens in the letter, by the way. He is strong in his words when absent, but weak when present. So rather than you being ashamed of me and degrading me and demeaning me and assuming the false accusations against me, Paul says, I want you to fully groan in your understanding of my love for you and the grace of God in me and my good conscience so that you will boast in me of us in the day of the Lord Jesus as we will. Because there's uncertainty on the first so that that will happen as we will boast of you, which is amazing. This church, Paul says in the day of judgment, he is confident he will stand before Jesus and he will boast about the Corinthians. Now, if you were one of the leaders of the Corinthian church, was that a church you'd boast in? Man, I, I want to boast of like Ephesus or some place like that, you know, at least early Ephesus. They lose their first love and it goes badly as it often does. But he's, he's like, I'm confident. You know what, you know what I'm going to do with you on judgment day? I'm going to boast about you in the presence of Jesus. This recalcitrant, stubborn, rebellious, assuming the worst, accusing, even receiving a different Jesus. Demeaning his apostleship, he's like, it doesn't change my heart towards you. In the day of Christ, I'm going to be boasting about you, in part because you're going to be per perfect. <laughs> Won't have any of these problems anymore. And is he boasting in them because they're such great, good people? No, he's boasting in them. And this is probably an allusion to Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24, the famous boasting passage. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that is the Lord, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, Covenant love, justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So he's going to boast in them. And he says, this mutual boast, I'm looking forward to a judgment day when all the shame and all the accusations are coming. And that's what I'm headed to. And I hope you will understand it so you could head there with me together. So that's a mutual boast. Now in verses 15 through 17, he talks about a planned visit talks about a planned visit. Because I was sure of this, because I was sure of what? That we are going to have a, a double boasting day on the day of judgment. Because of this, I wanted to come to you first. So get what he's saying here is because of where we're headed in the judgment day, we've got all of these interpersonal problems and accusations. Because I was sure where we were headed, I was going to do something now to fix this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Now, there's some question about what this means. And there, there are theological camps that use this as a, well, in a couple of different ways. One is that the apostles had this kind of 
uh, embedded grace in them, kind of like a magician, and they could come and like lay hands and give another blessing of grace. Sometimes this scripture is used to talk about a second work of grace. Um, Wesleyanism uh, followed some of this idea that, you know, I could be born again and blessed, but then go to a higher level of Christian maturity and holiness, and in some cases in Wesleyanism, at least, uh, perfectionism. But I don't think this is exactly what's going on. I wanted to come to you first so that we could reconcile and take care of this stuff. But the second experience of grace, I believe, has to do with what we're going to see later in their ability to give money to the care of others. And so it's better to give than to receive. And it's embedded with the grace of being able to give. If you look over in chapter 8, verse 6, we'll see some similar language. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. And what is it? It's the generosity and the funds that are needed to care for people who were in the midst, particularly people in the church who were in the midst of poverty and needed help. And so he says this act of grace, I think it's going to be tied back to this here. I wanted to come, as we're going to see, to take a collection of money so that you could get your mind off yourselves, you could be generous, you could care for the church and see God's grace in the midst of that. So I wanted to come to you first. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, which is up north, and to come back to you from Macedonia. You said, this, this was my plan, this is what I wanted to do. And then have you sent me on, on my way to Judea where the offering was going to be taken? So Paul is moving around, he's, he's taking up offerings. We read in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, take up an offering so that when I come, I won't have to take it up. You already have, have it gathered for me. But it's for, for the poor saints in Judea. He's gone to Macedonia. He's gone to Corinth. And basically, the Corinthians and the Macedonians all pledged to support the Jewish Christians that were in Judea who were suffering. So what I wanted to do was visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia. So there's two trips. And to have you send me on my way to Judea. You could be the sending church for this offering. You could be in the last church that I visited on my way back. And that, that would have the freshest greetings. And you could be the one who would financially support me across the waters to go back then into Judea. This would have been a privilege to support an apostle in this way. Kind of like the privilege of sending a missionary. Like a Kyla or like um, other of our friends uh, whose names... Some, some of which must not be named uh, publicly. But to have them send them away, that, that would have been a privilege. That's what I wanted. Now, yeah, he says this. I told you that. This is what I wanted to do. Was I vacillating? And he asked two rhetorical questions here. Was I vacillated, vacillating when I wanted to do this? Was I vacillating? Was I just like a, a, a vacillating fans? Like, yeah, Macedonia, Corinthians, Macedonia, Corinthians. Is, is that how you view me? I'm just vacillating. Oscillating, I guess that's what, what is it, right? Oscillating, vacillating. But you get the image. Just going back and forth. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? And the, the, the answer, expected answer is like, well, no. I mean, we really think that's what you were intending to do. Did I make my plans according to the flesh? And this probably has to do with manipulation. Did I, did I tell you these plans to manipulate you and get something? Is, is that really what you think I was doing? That I was making these plans saying, oh, yes, yes. Oh, no, no. Just suiting the situation. 
at the same time, was I saying yes, yes, and no, no? And this, is, this, this sums up really what they were accusing him of. Oh, Paul, he just vacillates in his plans. His first this thing, then the next thing, and then another thing. I mean, look, we see he's play, change, changed his plans. That just shows that he's a vacillator. Either that or he says yes, yes, just to be a people pleaser. He tells these people yes. He tells these people no. When they get together, then he's in trouble because he's been caught. Because he's just a liar and he's manipulating. And he says, is, 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 that, is that what you think? And then he does this most remarkable thing where somebody might say, flag on the field, somebody's cheating. He pulls the God card. He, he goes to a theological argument to argue that he himself has not been lying about this. And most of us would be like, well, you know how, I mean, if I said this to you, you know I'm not lying because God doesn't lie. You'd be like, what? <laughs> that doesn't prove anything. Are you kidding? But that's kind of what Paul does here. He says, look, I'm a representative of a faithful God. And so in verse 18, he says, as surely as God is faithful. It's like, wait a minute, are you, who brought God into this thing? You're telling us about your plans and why you changed. And Paul's like, you, you want to know what motivates me to speak truth? You want to mo mo know what motivates me when I make plans? It's this theological truth. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Man, that, to be able to say that in truth, someone has to have a really good conscience. And apparently he does. Our word to you has not been yes and no, as surely as God is faithful. When I said yes to you, I meant yes to you. When I later said no, I meant no, not because I'm vacillating, not because I'm working according to the flesh. But what we're going to see Paul here is, is like I'm human. And this was my plan. And that's what I meant when I said the plan. Things changed. Therefore, I made a different plan. That doesn't mean I'm lying and manipulating you. It means my mind changed based on the circumstances. In the same way that God interacts with human history, not in the same way, but in a similar way, God interacts and says, if you repent, I will do this. If you don't, I will destroy you. But when he comes and says, 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That was a declaration. Well, God changed his mind. God repented. God relented. His point is, Speaking at that moment, he meant fully what he meant. He wasn't lying. He wasn't manipulating. And his mind changed because the circumstance changed. But that doesn't besmirch his character. That's what he's defending here. Then he brings Jesus into this. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. In this sense, when you're a Jesus man, a Jesus woman, you're a yes man, yes woman, because he is the one who is yes and amen always in him. For all the promises of God find their yes or their amen in him. So he's building some really deep theological underpinnings. He's deep, some really deep trenches to pour concrete on his character and what he's saying to them and the footings of all of his ministry is the faithful God with the faithful Jesus 
who fulfills all the promises of God, yes and amen in him. That's why we are doing this. We can't have a ministry that lacks integrity because we're building on a faithful God and a faithful promise-keeping God. And then he says, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So it's kind of a theological bypass that he goes to. He says, oh, by the way, don't forget about the character of God and who Jesus is and why we utter our amen. And this is why what we say is true, because God is faithful and true. And therefore, you should expect what we've said to you that is true. And then he says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So what Paul is saying here is not arguing by virtue of his authority. Dadgummit, I'm an apostle. Dadgummit, I am in a place of authority and you should obey me and you should listen to me and you should believe me. What he's call upon, calling upon them with is their union in Christ with him, his sacrifice and good conscience before them, the fact that God has anointed them together with Christ, has put the seal of the Holy Spirit and given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, what we're going to see is this, this isn't a church leader who has stolen money and lied and done things and had sexual relationships and whatever. He's not defending that. It's the accusations based on his own weakness and his own frailties and his own uh, 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 his, his, his struggling and not able to, to hold some of these things together. We're going to see it's that that they're saying based on that. He's a nobody. He's weak. He, he, he doesn't keep his promises and therefore he's nothing. So that's why, again, I say we have to be careful not to make a one or one parallel because then you can have a preacher that's up to his eyeballs and sin quote this passage and say, how could I sin against you? Surely God is faithful. It's like we're not talking about one to one correlation. We're talking about the testimony of this man's conscience and the people who know him. And that's what he's going to argue throughout the letter. So we're going to come back to this in just a moment. But what we see here is a, a, a Trinitarian basis for a faithful ministry. God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So now he talks about a canceled visit. i got to pick up my pace here. A canceled visit, verses 23 through 22. I call God to witness against me. And again, this, this runs us into some trouble when if we come from a theological or, or um, Christian uh, position that you should never swear any oaths or vows whatsoever because we repeatedly find Paul doing it in his letters. Like he didn't get the memo or something. Either that or that's not exactly what Jesus meant. He meant something else or was dealing with another issue. But he says this. He's like, okay, I've, I've already brought my, t my conscience forward. And my conscience says... Paul, not guilty of the things you accuse him, lying, manipulating, vacillating, canceling, using you, stealing money from you, etc. And we're going to see that later in the letter. That's one of the accusations. I called it, Now he calls to the witness stand a second witness, and it's God himself. I want God to testify against me, and if, and if I'm not speaking the truth, may God speak up. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth again. So here's the question. Why didn't you come to Corinth? If your plan was to go Macedonia, Corinth, and then Judea, why didn't you come back? He said, I'll tell you why. 
It was to spare you. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming. So the circumstances that changed was his relationship with them where he was going to come, but things had fallen apart. And if he comes now, it's not going to be good. So he wanted to spare them. And, and the idea of sparing is sparing someone pain or misery or suffering or discomfort. So it wasn't Paul's Paul wasn't sparing himself. Paul was sparing them. If I had come, I was concerned of what would happen and the pain that I would cause you. Not that we lorded over your faith, by the way. Beautiful passage here. Not that we lorded over your faith. Like this, this is not Paul, the apostle, the authoritarian. This is not an eldership who has an authority above scripture. This isn't an eldership who just calls the, the, the authority card and just do what we say. No, it's not that we, even as apostles, lord it over your faith. But I want to work and we are working together for your joy. And if I had come, joy would not have come out of that meeting. And so I purposely changed my plan because the relationship as it had broken down from my previous visit to now. Something would happen here that I'm concerned would not create joy in you, but would create pain and misery and suffering. Therefore, that's why I said, you know what? Titus, Silvanus, Timothy, I'm not going to the Corinthians. Why? Because that meeting, I'm going to have to say and do things because that's when they were still unrepentant. That was going to have to bring discipline on them and was going to make things worse for them. And then he says this, ESV, I think it's a little wrong here. For you stand firm in your faith, I think should be translated for you stand firm by faith. A lot could be said about that. I need to pass on. Then he says this, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. And what, what, what he tells us by that is there was another previous visit that was painful. I made up my mind. I had come for a visit. That turned into a painful visit. As best as we can restruct it, Paul comes to clear up some things from 1 Corinthians. You have this uh, ringleader there who publicly opposes him and has the majority of the church behind him. And Paul is shamed publicly. He is denounced. He's called a liar. He's called a thief. And it's a painful visit, not merely for them. It's a painful visit for him. Things had so broken down in confidence and trust in his absence and in this ringleader coming in that we're going to see actually seem to have repented. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain. Who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Like if, I, if I came back and that ringleader was still in control. And y'all were still following him. You would cause me pain. I would have to cause you pain because of some sort of discipline. And this is a big mystery for me. I don't know what Paul would have done. Would he have done like a holy apostle zap on them? You know, made them, ah. I mean, what would he, he's not physically going to beat them up. I mean, what would he have done? And I, it's a mystery to me. What exactly is he talking about by way of disciplining an entire church? I mean, what does an apostle do? Like take the church flag down and roll it up and, you know, walk back to Judea with? I mean, what does he do? Does he take away their ordination status or what? What does it mean that Christ removes the candle stand? I don't know exactly. 
But he says, whoever has caused me pain, the only one that can retract that pain is the one who caused it to me. And at that point, there was no evidence that this man or the people who were following him had yet repented. And so instead of a painful visit, he writes a difficult letter, verses three and four. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, remember, there's a first visit, goes away, intends to come back. The ringleader has taken, he's going to visit again, decides not to go, though he had said previously he was. Instead, he writes a letter and it's, it's a severe letter. It's a difficult letter. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain. So there he does flip it around. The last visit was painful for him. By people that he loved to be so accused and not given an opportunity to respond, not given a fair chance to give reason for the things that he said or he did. He comes in and the majority is against him and he leaves with his tail tucked between his legs, his head down. This apostle who had loved and sacrificed them through the influence of this man and this group. He leaves and he is in pain. And he says what should have happened out of that meeting was I, I should have been rejoicing. From those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you. That my joy would be the joy of you all. I just thought if I could come in and talk to you and explain things and the joy of serving the Lord and explain these things out, that my joy could be the joy of you all. Instead, I left in pain. So I wrote, I wrote a letter. He says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction. And he's speaking of his own affliction. Now he's, he's telling about the disposition with which he wrote. I mean, how many of us are tempted out of a meeting like that to write a, red, you know, a scathing, hard, mean, how dare you letter? But here's where we see Paul's pastoral heart. He is broken over this. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. He is pulling the parchments together. He is writing this letter. He is getting the ink. He is getting the quill and he is trembling and he is afflicted and he is in anguish of heart. He is weeping and weeping and weeping. This, this isn't a thing about pastoral authority or apostolic authority. This isn't a man whose ego is swollen and has been hurt. And now he's just got a, you know, hiney whooping and is, you know, going off to mope. He knows that what is happening to these people that he loved as led by this ringleader and this group of people is so devastating that not only will it undermine their confidence in his pastoral apostolic care, but it's going to erode them at deeper levels than they even realize. And there are going to be consequences on their faith and consequences on their marriages and consequences on their lives that will continue to erode over time. And he says, I love you enough not to let you go down this road. And I'm in anguish over what to write to you. And therefore, I wrote this letter. And it's what we call the letter between first and second Corinthians, which is the letter that we don't have. So I wrote to you and my purpose in writing that letter was not to cause you pain but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And so he wrote it when they were still unrepentant. He wrote it to them and affirmed his love for them, affirmed them 
and the abundant love and the tear and the anguish, even when they were still unrepented, even when the ringleader was still in control. So the difficult letter wasn't the letter that was primarily difficult to them. It was difficult for him. So there we are in the story. Now we're stopping the story. So come back next week for the next segment of the story. How are they going to respond? What else does Paul have to say? To be continued next week. So what do we do with this? Here's the application point. What does it mean to us? First of all, I'll just point out here the difficulty of human relationships. I'm I'm reading through um, uh, Tim Keller's book, uh, Meaning of Marriage, talking about relationships. And just made me think, it's just amazing to me that we all don't just kill one another. (laughs) And just throat punch one another. And that things aren't worse. I mean, things can be bad relationally. It's, It's just shocking to me that any of us can get along at all. Relatively. You say, look at the culture. It's like, but even the fact that we have, I mean, it's shaking, but the fact that people aren't just all the time walking down the street shooting one another worse than it is, is is remarkable. But here we see in the dynamics of a true apostle and a true church of the most early and pure of Christianity as it first started, they've got all of the same difficulties of relationships that we continue today. And what we can't do is view the Bible and biblical relationships and this idea of, you know, if you do things the right way or if you have the right teaching, then it'll just be this kind of paradise on earth and everybody gets along and just it's like, nope, it's just not going to happen. It doesn't happen with somebody like an apostle, with people like the Corinthians, with people like us. The reality is there will always be difficulty in human relationships. And the closer they are, the more difficult they tend to be. Because there's sin. There's suspicion. There's betrayal. There's gossip. There's accusations. There's insecurities. There's selfishness. There's pride on both sides of the aisle. And so somebody, somebody hears something and there's a little suspicious over here. And so they ask a question and this person then is feeling insecure. So they respond in a bad way. And then this person says, oh, see, I, I knew it. And, you know, and then it just goes this cycle. It's, it's amazing. Any of us can talk about anything. It's a miracle. Because there's all of this stuff and all of my insecurities and all of my own examination of our own hearts and what we're doing. And it's amazing that we can do anything. And so this passage just reminds us that in the best of churches with the best of teaching, human relationships are going to be hard. Anybody who comes to a church and says, oh, this is a biblical church, therefore they're not going to deal with these things and I can come into this church and not have to worry. I remember a family asked me years ago, we want to make sure that RBC is a healthy church for our family. It's like that. That sounds like a great, great goal. What do you mean by that? well, we don't want conflict and we don't want this and we want it. It's like, well, <laughs> uh, look around. Last time I checked, it was unredeemed or uh, uh, unglorified sinners and uh, safe and healthy in the sense of not abusive, yes, but safe and healthy for our family that we won't have the regular problems that we have in the world and everywhere else. But, but the difference is this. 
Living as Jesus' followers is often solutional. I just made that word up this morning. I'm quite proud of it. I couldn't find it anyway. Living as Jesus' followers is solutional. Like, what does the Bible give us the tools to do? It's not merely preventative. Because as much as we try to control and prevent problems, problems will still find us relationally and otherwise. It's just going to happen. As much as we try to prevent our children doing or not doing things, they still do or do not do them. As much as we try to prevent people from hurting us or lying to us or whatever, it still happens. So it's not primarily preventative. It's not, in this case, we're not talking about preventative. Assuming that sin happens and suspicions, and insecurities, and selfishness. What is the solutional gospel answer to that? And Paul loads this passage with exactly that. The solution is the gospel itself. And it's a gospel lived out and planned by and executed by a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So here's the theological underpinnings, the the ground level. How are these relationships How are our relationships, how are suspicions and accusations and uncertainties and insecurities, how can those things solutionally be helped? It is to start with the right foundation. And the right foundation is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So the theological underpinnings here is the Father, who, as we saw, is the faithful one. None of us are completely faithful. None of us are completely faithful in absolutely everything we do without failure. We make plans and we sometimes change our minds and change our plans. Doesn't make us liars. And guess what? Sometimes we do lie. Anybody in here ever lied before? Be honest. Anybody? Anybody? Can I get one? Can I get one? Those of you not raising your hand, you should raise the other one because you just lied. It's the faithful promise keeping God. That's the underpinnings that we're working with one another in unity with Christ because we have a faithful God who does not lie And that's the direction we're headed. And so we are committed to one another to speak the truth in love. But it also includes the son in this passage. The son who is the son of God, Messiah, who shows us what it means to sacrifice. When he's on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Paul is writing to the church saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what what, what they do. And I'm looking forward to the day I will boast of them in them. And I'm writing you with the hope of redemption that you'll hear and listen to what I say because I believe Christ is in you and Christ is working. And Paul hasn't lost hope in this church. The Son teaches us about reconciliation. The Son teaches us about humility. The Son teaches us about grace. And to have a solutional church where the gospel is active and powerful doesn't mean never getting hurt, never being lied to, or never being accused. It means dealing with it with sacrifice, forgiveness, reconciliation, humility, and grace. And then we have the Spirit himself that Paul mentions here who seals us and guarantees his work in us. Paul is not here depending on the Corinthians' well-meaningness or their... their, their, um, their gung-ho-ness or their, their own intelligence, like he is believing and hoping and writing with an, with an expectation that the Holy Spirit is going to work in them to respond to what he's saying. And as we work with one another, that's what we hope. That's what we expect. 
that we've been sealed and guaranteed by the down payment of the Holy Spirit. And as we deal with one another in grace, we will find the solutions that repair relationships that are even the most deeply broken. And then what we find finally in this passage, anticipated hope, that as we do this, we are working toward a day where we will boast in one another in Christ. But we will boast in one another. We will look at one another and go, look what God did. And I can point at you and go, look what God did. Look what God did. Point to your family. Point to your love for Christ. Point to your love for the church. Point to the church and say, look at this. Look what Jesus did. Man, I'm so proud of you guys. I just love you guys. You say, oh, that sounds like, you know, Self-help, prosperity, things. Paul says it. I'm proud of you. But I'm proud of you because of the grace of God in you that is changing you and transforming and is bringing gospel solutions to real life relational problems to the glory of his name. Praise be to his name. Let's pray. And uh, Lord willing, we'll come back in two weeks. Next week, Resurrection Sunday, Tyler will bring us a word tied in in some way thematically. That's right, isn't it? Easter is next weekend. Just making sure I'm getting a lot of serious stares. Just wanted to make sure. Then in two weeks, Lord willing, we'll come back and continue this uh, examination of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for preserving this letter for these 2,000 years of Paul to a church to teach us, to lead us, Lord, we long to have such a conscience that can say, with God as my witness. We long to live with simplicity and godly sincerity. We long to see solutions within our marriages, within our parenting, within our singleness, within our relationship as families, to see not only righteousness prevent us from doing wrong, but also when we do wrong, that there would be the solution of the gospel itself. So please, we don't know the outcome of the story. We don't know exactly what happened in this church. We're not given anything beyond the information of this letter. But Lord, we hope and pray that we can hope and pray with the faith that Paul labored in love for your church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.